Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Oh, come all you faithful to be real guys. Thanks everyone for being here at uh, this movie podcast in this uh, non-specific audio space. I'm Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. How are you, sir? I'm getting into the Christmas spirit. Uh, I don't really seem to have a choice about it, but American society has dictated that I must get into it. So you know that, here we are. That was going to be my lead-in, uh, was on the phone is, here's Noah Ballard. He doesn't celebrate Christmas, but he lives in this country, so yeah, he does. Well, I'm also, I mean, you know this about me, that I'm like a huge fan of Christmas. Yes, I do know that. And as much as I sort of pretend to not like Christmas or their Christmas spirit the euphoria that surrounds the time uh in fact i do what else do what do we need to discuss is there anything that is going on how's your uh christmas shopping going chance i did it once again on this nifty little website amazon.com uh nice and had everything sent to my parents house and gave them the traditional don't open this if it has my name on it call and uh then it'll be pretty much good from there. We're, I got, I nice. got it. I got you it. Feeling strong about these gifts, though. Yeah, I think so. Yourself, Hanukkah gifts for your family. Um, I bought my mother a tasteful scarf for Hanukkah, um, and I got my dad this sort of uh, interesting vest. <laughs> it's sort of like an outdoorsy <laughs> vest. Uh, he has this other vest that I didn't, that I, I, I don't care for. So I thought if I bought him a nice one, he'd wear it. He probably won't, or he probably will in like five years. That's what, that's what my dad does. Like I'll give him a gift to be like, Oh, thanks. And then he'll like put on that blue polo that I gave him five years ago, five years later and be like, <laughs> I wonder where I got this shirt. Did I buy this at Sam's club? And I'll be like, no dad, I spent fifty nine ninety nine on it five years ago. <laughs> Well, that, but I don't harbor any animosity towards my family about gift giving. Doesn't sound like it. Nope. Doesn't sound like it. Uh, well, you know, the greatest gift you can give is uh, sponsorship to this podcast. And, uh, you know, we've, we've sort of been on the fence, haven't we, about uh, letting experimental uh, medications and drugs sponsor this? Because we had that whole thing with uh, RUD90 that didn't turn out very well. Um, oh my god <laughs> right you tampered with the samples yeah we've got a sponsor we've got a, a very important uh previously recorded word from a very famous person so let's get to that well, well hi everyone it's, it's holiday icon george bailey here with a, with an important message you, you know, Clarence was right. Every time a bell rings, an, an angel does get its wings. But, but the tolling of all bells eventually perishes into deafening silence. December 25th becomes the 26th, and, and pretty soon you're, you're confronted with the same set of emotions that led you to be choking and yelling in that freezing river. 
Well, now there's there's Caprax, a new medication clinically proven to stave off the Pottersville within your own mind. You owe it to yourself, your family, and all the people clustered around the savings and loan to get your head right. Now, side effects of Caprax include <coughs> vertigo, hallucinating the moon as, as something that can be lassoed, or waking up frequently in the night yelling, Harry, Mary! But ask your healthcare provider about Caprax today, because the, the Great Depression may be over, but you still need to wake up tomorrow and, and fix the banister. Uh, well, Merry Christmas, ev everyone. Harry, Mary! Um, well, Chance, when we... Uh, I, I feel like I, I have to... I have to air a few things, uh, and I've I've chosen to before we dive into these movies to to write down a few thoughts. So if if I may, I'd like to to read a prepared statement. Yes, please about our theme tonight. In this week's podcast, one chance and I have dubbed Christ the Lude. We'll be taking a look at three holiday movies that take the gross out raunchy comedy approach. Those familiar with the podcast or my personality in general will know that the traditional Christmas film is a particular favorite of mine. Why do I love Christmas movies and Chance despises them? Perhaps it's the sincerity, the typically underlying romantic plot, or my underlying Judaism and Chance's <laughs> passive rejection of his own faith. But I personally know no better way to celebrate this special, unquantifiable time of year by watching Kevin McAllister experience trauma that will certainly define his adult relationships, or Nick Cage yell crazy things at Taya Leone at JFK before she moves to London. But my appreciation for this, this genre of film is not without a consistent and critical rubric. Now, the raunchy Christmas movie is its own beast, but it still exists within the same ballpark as all Christmas movies. Aware of certain rules, and without fail, a moral code that involves subscribing to the magic of Christmas. By following these rules, all of these films, in order to be accessible to a general audience, explore, criticize, and celebrate the suburban American family and what familial love means for the middle class. And more specifically for these films, the genre posits the American man, once they have come of age, all desire to reach said state of Christmas euphoria and all manner of sins may be, may be forgiven if the end result is an act of love. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation will take a very John Hughes family, as it is a film written by John Hughes, with a traditional hapless patriarch, eye-rolling rock of a matriarch, and two kids of either gender with deep skepticism towards the situation they've been thrust into. It's a movie that's deeply concerned with the prerogatives of the middle class, hanging the needs of Chevy Chase's Clark Griswold on creating the American Christmas ideal we've been led to believe is the essence of this season from films like It's a Wonderful Life, Christmas in Connecticut, and Miracle on 34th Street. And ultimately, the conflict of the film hangs on a suburban middle-class father providing for his family through the tangible goal of installing a swimming pool. The world, however, conspires against Clark, never forgiving him for his own hubris, his own desire to be a man, as seen through his subservient role at work, his sexual frustrations, an unaccommodating series of Christmas trees, and an overtaxed electrical system. It's a very cynical series of films. Often is there pleasure in punishing the protagonists for the people, blood, fate, or circumstance have deemed their family. In the night before, the biblical story of the three wise men is told through the conceit of an ersatz family being formed after the literal death of a traditional family unit. Joseph Gordon-Levin's Ethan, his parents are killed, ironically and somewhat cringe-inducingly due to the film's steadfast celebration of drug and alcohol abuse, in a drunk driving accident on Christmas. 
his two friends, caricatures of an expectant father and a latter season football player, bond together over the course of 15 years to form a family, albeit one that abets all sorts of unforgivable behavior in search of Christmas euphoria. But isn't that the American understanding of what Christmas should be? And then our third film, Bad Santa, Billy Bob Thornton's Willie, a thief with the running scam of casing department stores disguised as the mall Santa, must come to terms with not the commercial limitations of American life or his own fear of commitment keeping him from connecting with his contemporaries, but his own cynicism toward the vulnerability that comes with the Christmas spirit he's been avoiding since his Dickensian childhood. And I mentioned Dickens because Will Willie is a Scrooge archetype, making his living through the naivete of others who believe in Christmas euphoria, but ultimately offsetting his absence of belief with heavy drinking and anonymous anal sex. What separates these films from the typical holiday fair is their argument that familial love is not a foregone conclusion. Kevin's mother is always going to find a way back to Chicago, even if it's in a van with John Candy. Nick Cage was always going to pick the life of suburban satisfaction over Wall Street nihilism. George Bailey is always going to make it home. But our films aren't about the path of least resistance. Clark isn't going to bail out his cousin Eddie's dire finances with his Christmas bonus. There's a really good chance these 30-something guys probably do see each other way less now that they've settled down. And Willie the Mall Santa probably isn't going to marry white trash Lorelai Gilmore and raise Thurman Merman. But for this moment... They're creating one act of love on December 25th and subscribing to American middle-class values so we understand that they're good people. The emotional payoffs of these films are the fade-to-white moments that these characters, through indulgence, substance abuse, and grand larceny, must discover within themselves, and they ultimately become films about people just like us, those who take family for granted by shaking them off as an annoyance, a burden, or an enabling force that encourages our worst selves. And if there's anything to take away from these films... Regardless of Chance's foregone cynicism, it's that beyond the artifice created by this time of year, it's a nationally, if not internationally, recognized venue in which one can appreciate how we serve the ones we love, both blood relations and those we've picked up through more interesting circumstances. They're about having a little hope that something improbable will happen because you, it was supposed to happen. And ultimately, these movies are about people who stay in touch, even though they have no good reason to, even if it's dressed up as a podcast, because they love each other. So if Chance and I disagree, at least we had this conversation at all, and it has sustained our little family for another year. I love you, Chance. Oh, I was mounting such a comeback over here, and then it just melted at the end like my heart. That was a great bringing together of all three of these. Uh, and if we're going to bounce off toward the contemporary one, does that sound good? Yeah, where should we start? You want to start with The Night Before? Sure, I just saw it today in maybe the weirdest viewing circumstance I could imagine. Which is what? Uh, with my late 60s father and my 13-year-old brother in tow. <laughs> You're on three wise men. Gentlemen, 14 years ago to this very night, I lost my parents. And you guys have been with me every single Christmas since then. You knew. But tonight, we have decided to end this tradition. Chris is just too famous to hang out with us anymore. And Isaac's about to have a baby. You have been such a rock throughout this whole pregnancy. So now just focus on yourself. Whoa. Dreams? Is this cocaine? You haven't done cocaine for 11 years, I don't think. Yeah, no one has, I don't think. This movie, I mean, similar to This is the Ends and um, that North Korea one. The interview. Um, the interview. I feel like because it thinks that we know Seth Rogen... 
and Joseph Gordon-Levitt so well and Anthony Mackie so well that they didn't need to like develop their characters at all sure. because they're like, here's Joseph Gordon-Levitt being himself but like kind of a dick, and here's Seth Rogen being himself but like kind of settling down, and here's Anthony Mackie like, look, he's in the NFL even though we've done nothing to like make his tone or definition look any more striking <laughs> than it was in any other movie he's been in. It definitely just kind of launches in and gets going. Right. And it's like it's these three guys, and that's all you're gonna get. And I think that's especially problematic when it comes to Gordon Levitt's character, who's the emotion right. supposed to be the emotional anchor of, of he's everything. Supposed to be the, the protagonist of the film. Yeah, and y- I mean, you need him to, you know, well, you need his failure and his apprehension to be more interesting. The fact that he won't pursue his music, the fact that he threw away this relationship with Lizzie right. Kaplan. And I guess you're supposed to establish that, like, in the scene where he's, like, the elf. Right. But, like, the whole time I was thinking, like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, why are you dressed up like an elf? Right. Like, you're Joseph Gordon-Levitt. You should go and go to this party that I know is coming because I've seen the trailer for this movie. <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting that you that you checked the, the other Rogan. The, one, the thing that I probably like most about this movie is that well it's a Jonathan Levine wrote this movie who did 5050 which is the other Rogan Jogo Levitt movie and did Warm Bodies which I didn't see um but and Evan Goldberg was in there too yeah he's got a production he and Rogan have a production credit and a, oh he's got a writing credit too you're right yeah, um, yeah but I think that these the the sentiment of it or its goals towards sentiment kept it in check in a way that I like. There are a lot of other movies in the Rogan universe. Maybe this is a personal thing, but I think they become so lawless and exhausting. I'm thinking about This is the End and Pineapple Express in particular, which both have really hilarious moments, but they become right. They become so much that they, I don't know, they become like these experiences that I then cannot like grapple into did I like that did I not like that it was just really and this is it's a very manageable movie which I liked see like I feel like I could see through like what they were trying to do and I never bought into the sentimentality of it like it felt so clunky like just getting from scene to scene it's like what are you gonna what sort of like comedian on the rise are we gonna see in this next scene of some Christmas related thing that doesn't really add up to a larger overarching plot. Hmm. Like there's no reason he needs to get beaten up by Jason Manzukis. Right. Or like Alana to steal the no weed over reason, and over again. Right. The weed from the girl, the girl with from broad city. Uh, and like Nathan for you doesn't have to crash that limo. Like there's, See, I don't know. It just didn't add up to much. That, do, that doesn't bother me as much as, I would. I think it's a great tradition of these movies that they that they hoist up the next generation of people. What I found to be its uh, signpost of unoriginality is like the the celebrity cameos. Um, right. That's just we're. Ju- it's just. But that's the so, whole movie. Celebrity cameos. So played out. But I mean, like you know, having the Miley Cyrus at the end and having it be. I mean, it was just cameos of kinds of actors who play kinds of roles it's like oh we need the girl that we don't establish very well that joseph gordon levitt like really wants to settle down with uh what's lizzie kaplan doing do you think she could be in this movie 30 seconds i suppose then this would be my uh my alternative suggestion if you really wanted to make the feeling of this movie stick i don't think the issue is with the supporting cast i think it 
is that it just shouldn't have been made with such big of stars. I was thinking about like, if you still wanted to keep the types the same, why not make this with uh, Max Greenfield and Jake Johnson and Lamorne Morris, like the new girl guys. Like, right. I think or that just make could, it their that half an hour Christmas special. Yeah. I think that could have worked out better because like, then you, I, yeah. I think if you don't know them as well, you assume there's more to them. And then you also don't have the thing where they, they assume that, you know there isn't more to them <laughs> like you were right. talking about with Seth Rogen. Um, What's well, so interesting, like not only the, you know, the characters are poorly constructed, um, but for having four screenwriters on this, like the dialogue's pretty bad. Like a- most of Anthony Mackie's lines are being like, yo, I got that weed, that piff, that, uh, that sticky. And it's like, <laughs> we, we, we get it. I know you're trying to be like cool. And that's like your character's trying to fit in with the cool kids, even though he's a fucking professional football player. Right. Like we get it. You don't need to really like just hit us over the head with, he's trying to act cool. Like he is cool. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, true. there's no way he's not cool. Yeah. Yeah, it just has I mean it has the feeling of like being a, a superfluous. Oh, and the fucking steroids plot? Give me a break. <laughs> Why? Be real, guys. <laughs> that they like the first thing they establish about him is just like look at this like sort of 30 something uh athlete. The first thing we're going to do is have him with a syringe fucking putting steroids into his ass. And then he just, like, calls him out on the subway. Like, don't you think the American people would have put together the fact that, like, you have someone who's on the closer side of 40 than 20 is somehow, like, a star athlete? And Joseph Gordon-Levitt having no real proof of his own just sort of knows? Like, don't you think somebody on SportsCenter would have said something? (laughs) No, I think levying that criticism that harshly, I think you just wanted this movie to be a different kind of movie. Did you just want it to be more serious? Like I did, I didn't. I didn't want it to be more serious. Like I, I mean, this is definitely my least favorite of the three, and I don't think the other two are any more serious. They just like don't feel so. That, that's my problem with these Seth Rogen, uh, sort of sprawling improv-heavy celebrity movies mm-hmm. is that they feel fucking lazy. Yeah, they kind of are. Like, this is a they're kind of they're kind of talent showcases. Right, but they're. They're not, they realize who they are, so they're not trying that hard. That doesn't bother me that much, though. I think that when you, when you get like that many people together who are all so good at their individual shticks and just say, turn it up, everyone, like you end up with something that's not great, not like very well constructed. Also, the, the editing in this movie is really bad. Like you can tell how it's like really out of order because people are like getting, uh, gradually more fucked up. Either uh, Rogan mixing mushrooms and coke, um, or uh, Jogo fighting people, or Anthony Mackie getting beat up by Alana from Broad City. Um, but the yeah the the scenes you can tell when they were done out of sequence, which is not great. Anyway, um, oh like in that weird and very obvious thing where they zoom in on the limousine and then zoom out, and it's like six hours later for some reason. Yeah, right. And how Rogan's hair keeps going from like sweaty and plastered to his face and then like right back up when he gets out of Michael Shannon's car in the next scene. Um, oh, speaking of Michael Shannon, he is the only saving grace in my mind of this movie. See, <sighs> he is in a completely different movie that I want to watch. Like the the quest for this drug dealer played by a weird Michael Shannon to get 
but he's actually an angel. See, I feel like we're just on totally different pages. Like his involvement in this movie was the part that I, that to me felt the most forced. That like that telegraphing thing from a mile away. We're like, oh, uh, we need this to be bound by like some version of a celebrity being Santa Claus, and there needs to be like some sort of like punk rock angel in it. Like that to me felt like the. Well, I mean, it's it's just a Christmas Carol. It's the future, past, and present weed. Yeah. And I was bored. You were bored? I was so bored. Even my brother was bored. Hmm. I wasn't bored. It's not that long of a I movie. I was kind of bored. I was bored. All right. I don't know what I can do for you. I just thought... I think you can join me <laughs> on the dark side and rate this bad, bad, what it deserves. Uh, I'm going to call it bad, good. I think it was enjoyable. You're going to call it bad, good. You thought this turd was entertaining to watch. Yeah. I laughed. Amazing. I had a good time. Amazing. See, it's funny because I was the one worried about you being overly critical, and I come out the gate being like, forget all of that. This movie sucks. Don't worry. We'll, cor- we'll correct in a second here. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. We moving on? Yeah. Which one do you want to do next, my friend? Let's do Christmas Vacation next. After vacationing across America and throughout Europe, this holiday season, the Griswolds are going to play it safe. Clark, we're stuck under a truck! Oops. They're staying at home. I give you the Griswold family Christmas tree. Hope you're not getting sap all over your sweater. 1989's Christmas Vacation. Is it the, thir- the third of four National Lampoon Vacation movies? Well, that's the weird thing about this movie because it's both a third installment of a like a like a series, but it's also like a standalone movie in my opinion. Okay. Do you not agree? I have. This was I had never seen this movie, and I've never seen any of the other ones. I have only seen. Actually, I think I have seen all of them, but I haven't seen any of the other ones more than once. Okay. And this one. You've seen a hundred. I watched. But yeah, I watch every year with my with my dad and my brother, and we laugh every single time, <laughs> without fail, because it's it's a really pleasant watching experience. Uh, I was glad you brought up when we were talking about Armageddon and Michael Bay the other week the idea of fifties nineties America, because it is even though we're one year away from the nineties, that's like exactly what this is. This was uh, well, it's a John Hughes movie. Yeah. Well, but I would say that the focus of most John Hughes movies are like, you know, teenagers and their problems in the 80s. And you never really, that's the curious thing about it being a John Hughes movie. You don't spend any time really with anyone else's concerns other than Clark Griswold's. Right. Well, that's the interesting thing. It'd be like if Home Alone was from the dad's perspective. Mm Yeah. Yeah. You know, but that's what allows this movie to be like, I would say, like one of the darker, if you really boil it down, one of the darker Hughes movies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But anyway, 50s, 90s is like really uh, coming to bear here, I think, because you have he even watches the film reels of himself in the mid 50s having Christmas and the economic conditions being right in America for white middle-class families to want to repeat the idyllic dreams of youth and like 
that's why you saw all sorts of things like leave it to beaver being remade in the 90s um right and that's like totally here and it's really cool that they are then like having this uh bad neighbor culture war with julia louis dreyfus and that other guy who look like they're in a david bowie music video and are like <laughs> jogging in very oh, like, yuppies yeah jo- yeah like uh american psycho characters yeah but they're also really funny, that couple. Yeah, they are. Like, like I think Julia Louis-Dreyfus is perfectly cast with that other guy. And, like, the way they talk to each other. Well, so- something got the carpet wet, Todd. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what broke the stereo, Margot? Like, they're great. Like, there's just some really, like, clever... Not, like, dialogue, but there's, like, clever moments in this movie. I think the movie's really good at moments of, like, you know, the it, it you know, we, we enter the story as they're singing carols on the way to get a Christmas tree, and, like, the kids just, like, aren't participating. Right, right. You know? I think you do well to point that out. I mean, like, that's, that's to me, what this, as someone, you know, coming to it cold, uh, probably, like, later than I should have, um... That's what this movie offers you is like a, a string of moments. Like if you step back, like you know, you you did, and we'll talk more about the uh, the important sort of cultural and class reading of this movie. If you step back, you can find that in there. But the actual like the stakes of this story are very sort of low and repetitive, and like it's just. Chevy Chase wanted. Well, it's basically a, It's basically three episodes of a sitcom. Totally, and that's what I have written down. Is like to me, this feels like a TV special because it it it's in such a hurry to get. It's it's really interested in getting to the jokes, but it could be over at any time. You feel like because the resolution right. is staring you in the face from like moment one. So it's just a matter of like getting in its jokes right. and then it's over. Well, it's a very traditional three-act story. I mean, it's the beginning is them preparing for the people to arrive. Then you have the people show up. And then you have the, the dinner, the Christmas. Right. And, But I just think what's so like interesting and kind of bold about this movie is between acts, it completely like resets the tone of it. And like each half hour to 45 minute like section of this movie operates under completely different rules than like the other one did. Mm-hmm. Because, like, the first one's, like, it's very normal, but, like, kind of a half step off. Like, sure. the the car sequence is not so unbelievable, you know, the him flirting with the woman at the uh, the unmentionables counter. Um, that's all very, like, this is suburban middle class humor. But then, like, in the second act, when Eddie shows up, like all bets are off. Right. Like the movie becomes a cartoon. Like then you have the sequence with um, the sled, mm-hmm. which is just so like, it's such a weird moment in like the, I think the world of this movie. Yeah. From the moment that Eddie shows up, it's like, Oh, gravity doesn't apply anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's like this, uh, yeah, exactly. For sure. This guy's here. and Right. And then in the third one, it goes back to it, it like even goes further into like settling into, oh, there's a world in which like we could kidnap this guy and he would just realize instantly that he had done something wrong. And when the SWAT team shows up, we end up like 
singing the national anthem and like having a dance well, it goes party to, and these guys destroyed house. It goes to farce. It goes from cartoon right. to farcical in the last But I act. would argue that the movie starts in a place that's like pretty normal and that's almost true. like interestingly so. Yeah. That's a good point. But the, the thing that ultimately tells the tale for me in terms of how I'm going to rate it is that like the end game of this movie like doesn't make sense to me or like it doesn't really have an end what do you mean it doesn't have an end game that's important it's the the fact that the movie it maybe it's that it didn't go to farce quickly enough the idea that this middle class family which is really like an upper middle class family if we're being real like the full the full stakes is whether or not they can put in a pool and this guy is going to go insane if he cannot put in a pool and his whole extended family is cheering about this Christmas See, bone. Like that, do- that doesn't matter. Like the, the, the movie for some reason, like really believed that that was important and like, that's stupid. See, I don't agree with you. I think that the way it's done, which if this movie had been, if this movie had been like a touch darker, I think it's like, it's almost like Coen Brothers level weird in that you're just looking at a character in a pretty like, you know, pretty typical situation, but you're just like analyzing like how fate sort of leads them to lose their mind. But ultimately it's his own doing, but that's like what's so tragic and what's so funny about Clark Griswold as a character is that everything that goes wrong in the movie is ultimately his fault. Totally. And so, like, he is keeping himself, as I said earlier, from having this Christmas that he really wants. But then what? And I think it's just sort of an interesting example of showing people on display who believe that having a good Christmas is something that's important. Well, then, then if we're going to go there, then I wish that the script would have spent some time with... Juliette Lewis and John Galecki or the ki- the kids basically or maybe Beverly D'Angelo's character could have had more because to me the tragedy is a fine word but there's a point at which like his obsession becomes like a little bit evil right I mean it becomes like pretty like death of a salesman level sad I would say it would have been really nice to be with someone else in terms of perspective or motivation right I don't know I disagree with you I think that to me at least the story is I mean it is like a death of a salesman for Christmas like it's this guy really counting on getting this money and like making his life better because he's like miserable. Like he fantasizes about this like woman flirting with him. Like nothing goes his way. His boss doesn't even know his name. Okay, but no, are you- he's a sad dude just trying to like make himself a little bit better, and that has manifested as this Christmas bonus to put in a swimming pool. Like maybe if I can just buy into the American dream a little bit more. I will be happy. And that is like a fascinating thing, especially in the late 80s. You're so you're so far into the subtext of the movie though. No, but that's why it's an enjoyable movie. Is because it's not just like a stupid like let's watch some comedians we've seen in better things like do drugs and act weird. Like here's a real sort of examination of that's why I think like the raunchy holiday movie is so funny to me and so interesting is the fact that they're all secretly criticisms of other movies. Hmm. 
And this one I think is particularly well done because not only is it a good entry itself into like things coming together in the end for like this Christmas spirit, but it also is subversive in the idea that it's criticizing a lot about like what people think will make them happy. Yeah. Well, I award you food additive designer of the year for that argument. Um, right. You can, you can have that. Um, so you think it's good? Agree good with me. I would say I'm going to have to give it a soft, good, good. Okay. At least give me a bad good because it's so watchable. I am giving you a bad good. It is, it's very right. watchable. It's very watchable. I just think you're like, you're just, <laughs> I think you're doing a really deep read that I, of course, is really smart, but like, I cannot pretend that like that is what is on the outside of this movie over the course of like a viewing experience. Listen, if you are, if your experience seeing this movie is seeing it for about the 150th time with your brother, your father, your dog, and your mother who's reading a book with headphones on because she despises <laughs> Christmas vacation, but still wants to be in the room with Woo! us. Oh, man. And we are just howling. We are just howling. <laughs> It's a great time. I recommend the viewing experience of watching this movie in the Ballard household between Thanksgiving and Christmas. That's great. That's what I recommend. That's, and that experience is a good that's good. That's a good good. All right. I'll take that. That's funny. Um, maybe before we dive into Bad Santa, I wanted to ask you what you thought about what these movies sort of say about the the cultural place of Christmas because I was thinking about this um, I'm trying to think about how to describe these movies and I was like half tempted to call them like kind of like iconoclastic because they you know seek to like subvert or at least like stick their tongue out at like the propriety of this holiday that has its roots in obviously something really religious but it seems to me like over like christmas movie the last 25 years like we are so far beyond that to the point where like there's not even a critique of materialism anymore like the materialism is like it's it's a commercial holiday like we get that it's like striving to get uh get to just a place of like what you said in your opening essay about about families and just like a place of personal good goodness like morality is even out of the picture what do you think right. what do you think these movies say about like how we do Christmas the last now? Interesting. Well, I think it's it's funny cuz like when like what I said in the opening, the thing that unifies this movie is the idea that to be a character in this movie to be redeemed, you have to believe in the power of Christmas. So it seems like the argument that these movies make as opposed to like some of like the early like 30s, 40s and 50s Christmas movies um not just like exploring stories that exist during Christmas time, but to like, have you believe that, you know, sure you'll be entertained when watching this movie, but the idea of a Christmas movie itself sort of implies that like, you need to take this time seriously. Yeah. They don't even want to argue about like the meaning of tradition because like, even that is like really frustrating to a point, like the point of, of all tradition and the, and maybe the tradition of like, you know, families getting together and watching the same movie over and over again is like, is just being together. And if like, if we get beyond that, we're going to fight about context and culture and things, but yeah. Right. 
Well, never in any of these movies, even these movies that are criticisms of a genre, I would argue, no one in any of them says, like, Christmas is stupid. You're right. Totally. No, nobody doubts Like, nobody doubts the importance of it. And maybe, like, Willie in Bad Santa, our next film, Mm. um, he's using it, but it's also a time of year that he believes in, because if he didn't believe in it, he wouldn't do it. Right. So let's get into Bad Santa. Uh, two, yeah, 2000. you want to do the plot? Chance? Yeah, chance? it's uh, 2003, uh, directed by Terry Zvigoff, who had a uh, really inconsequential resume. But the, the writing duo that did it is uh, Glenn Ficarra and John Requa, who over the last 10 years have done I Love You, Philip Morris, Crazy Stupid Love, A Favorite of Noah's and Mine, Focus. Were the Coen brothers involved in some capacity? Yeah, they produced it. Okay. And it has that kind of like feel to it at moments. At certain moments, um, well, I think it it the the Coen Brothers stamp that I saw in it was how it gets like a little bit too violent at the end. Yeah, yeah. Or like a little too violent for maybe. I don't know. I think that's why it's sort of like a niche movie. I wouldn't call this like super mainstream. <laughs> no, <laughs> nor would I. Uh, as Noah t- as Noah talked about, our protagonist Willie, played by. Billy Bob Thornton has an annual scam with uh, a little person dressed as an elf, and he dresses as Santa. Yeah. Uh, that's Tony Cox, who uh, who plays the mall elf, and Billy Bob's the, the mall Santa. And basically, they do Christmas season at a big mall or department store at some point in the country, and then presumably right before Christmas as the mall is closing up, they rob the joint because Billy Bob is an expert safe cracker. Uh, right. All. Well, they take the the month of December to like case the place, yep. and yeah. But and so then you. But uh, the job becomes less and less possible for Billy Bob to do because he just has crippling alcoholism. Like, and we can get into right. this. But there, there are like uh, leaving <laughs> Las Vegas esque moments in this movie where it's just like, oh, definitely. this guy's killing himself. Um, he literally does try to kill himself. Right. The movie makes. It was like the holiday. That's the key to a good holiday movie. Is oh a, god, <laughs> a weird suicide scene. Yep. What do you want? What do you want? What are you doing? When it came to holiday spirit, the dude's here. It's Santa. I'm on my lunch break, okay? Willie's never had it. Not real. Well, it was real. I got sick and all the hair fell out. How'd you get sick? I loved a woman that wasn't clean. Mrs. Santa? No, it was her sister. Oh, no. So, yeah, but then, so the movie starts with them, like, doing their last uh, heist. And then they, like, celebrate. And then he's, Billy Bob's like, I'm out. Uh, Willie's like, I'm out. I'm not doing this again. And Marcus is just like, I'll see you in nine months, asshole. Like, you're definitely... You're too drunk and too stupid to like not just live off of this one scam that just happens to keep working. And lo and behold, we catch up to them like nine months later and he's running a muddy and in some pretty like interesting visual scenes where you think he owns this bar like he said he was going to. And it turns out he's just stealing alcohol and making himself cocktails. (laughs) And then like he's just and the movie loves that he's he's like a butt guy. He's he just like will sit on the boardwalk eating a corn dog, like watching these women play volleyball and just stare at their butts. And it's like uh, it's it's such a it's an interesting visual cue. That's a play way to describe it. Disturbing would be another well, way. It's a, it's a running thing, though, of just like women's butts and him like zoning out looking at them or like, you know, getting a little weird in the ladies big and tall section. 
Uh-huh. Anyway, yeah, then they go to Phoenix and they uh they pick their their new mark, which is a department store run by John Ritter. Oh, Chamberlain's? Yeah, Chamberlain's. It's run by John Ritter and uh Bernie Mac is the uh yeah, security chief there. And I think John Ritter is this is like a surprisingly underrated performance of his. Yeah, the scene the him and Bernie Mac back and forth in the office are the best part of the movie for me. Well, I just think their characters are so interesting because you have like this arrested development, like very naive sort of um, Midwestern uh, mall manager guy. And then Bernie Mac is like this sort of like urban cowboy. Bolo tie wearing. Yeah. And he like smokes three packs of cigarettes and it's given him such bad constipation that he's just like constantly taking like Metamucil and like eating oranges. And he is the guy who like is trying to figure out whether or not he's the foil in the movie. Right. But then like it complicates things because Bernie Mac starts looking at into uh, Willie's life. And so Willie has to hide out in the houses of one of the children who he's he's seen as in the, his Santa capacity. Right. When the child saves him from being maybe raped. That's the part of the movie that is so unclear to me what the office space guy was doing there. Right. It's very, like, very uncomfortable, weird moment. Well, you think it's, I mean, and I've again seen this movie many times. Have but you? You initially, yeah. Wow. You initially think that like he's mad at him for being like a drunk Santa Claus. Yes. At least that's what I initially thought. But then it turns out that he's just like psychotic and just like thinks that Billy Bob Thornton has been like flirting with him or something. And he's found the whole thing like really upsetting. Yep. Weird, unexplained but, moment. But he manifests that with, like, sexual assault. And the kid saves him, and his dad's in prison for embezzlement. So there's an empty room at the house with uh, him and the totally senile grandma. Uh, and so that's where Billy Can Bob... Can I make you some sandwiches? That's where Billy Bob hides out. That's Cloris Leachman. Yes, he was. So, as someone who worked at Macy's, which is very similar to Chamberlain's for several years... Um, I have to tell you, it's, like, pretty funny in, like, the weird characters you just sort of, like, interact with. And that's why I think it's also, like, very Coen Brothers movie-esque. It's, like, it's a normal situation, but, like, turned up to a thousand. So, like, and what makes it so weird is, like, the people. And then, like, ultimately, like, that is what is interesting about drama or comedy. Um, it's the, 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 the competition these people are having to get what they want. And you know, there's just something funny about seeing people that I recognize from like working at a mall and like living in the suburbs. Um, but this movie, like where I will, and we can get to our ratings eventually. Um, but what I think this movie where it falters is in the fact that it's, it's, it's almost not a comedy. No, it's really, it's, you know, it's not. The, the the I like the Ritter Max scenes the best because like though there's like some joke writing there and like really people riffing off each other. But it's a it's a good question whether it's a comedy or not because there's a lot of shock value in the things that Billy Bob Thornton says and does. But it's a big question 
as to whether the movie well i'll say let me say this first often they're they're not funny like a dumber movie would try to pass them off as funny um but i don't think the movie like finds his behavior particularly endearing and like you know neither neither do i like it's it's reprehensible a lot of times um well i think that's where the movie like saves itself uh, in my opinion which it does uh is the fact that yeah like this is a horrible guy to watch but like the movie itself is not terribly like it, it it gets that his behavior is bad like it doesn't have a lot of sympathy for him yeah but then that's true but then my next question is like sort of like a why question like so then i'm you know i don't enjoy watching this horrible man drink himself to death i mean it's the same trajectory as like a movie like you know the mighty ducks or hardball or something where you take this guy who like you feel kind of bad for cause you see like the road he's been down and it certainly hasn't been easy, but he's a schmuck. And then he's given a chance to redeem himself through his love of children. Uh, but he doesn't love children. He doesn't love anyone. Right. But that's the question is, can he like, and I argued this at the beginning, but like, can he, show one act of love on December 25th that redeems his bad behavior for the preceding two, uh, 364 days. Yeah. You're yeah. But the, I think that the reason that he, he doesn't feel redeemed in my eyes because like this, this kid that he ends up spending this time with, it's not clear whether this kid has a mental illness, but the only reason that they, (laughs) the only reason that they get along is because the kid through lack of understanding is never hurt by any of the crazy things that Billy Bob says to him. Well, the kid's like, well, that's what, again, like, again, this is, wouldn't sound like a dramatic thing if I just explained it to you. You didn't understand it was the context of a movie that was ultimately marketed as a comedy, but this kid's clearly dealing with like post-traumatic stress from like both losing his mother and then seeing his father go to jail. Right. Like, so he's so numb to literally every stimulus that he doesn't even feel it when, like, somebody throws a bottle at him. The movie is, it's such a weird movie, though, because, like, there's a lot of, like, moments of, see, I found the attempts to be kind of writerly to be sort of annoying, like, the, uh, the the narrated monologue at the beginning about how his dad beat him when he's just like but i guess that's just the way things go don't they anyway like that's sort of like a okay good good job you guys at like trying to write well that's the uh, thing that's supposed to establish like you're not going to show a montage of all these things i'm not happening. asking for a montage i'm just saying like as far as fakara and requa's writing goes like this is like some pretty I think this is it some was pretty, pretty 101 device stuff. to use to like establish a narrative trope right Um, but there's a lot of weird moments where someone like he is a working mall Santa and someone is just like, Oh, do you like kids? And he's like, you think I'm a pedophile lady? (laughs) It's just like, no, like there's a, there's like three or four of those moments where it's just like, (laughs) buddy, like, why would you go beyond assuming the easy thing to assume? I think that's one of the tricks of the movie in showing us like what his limitations are. (laughs) God, okay. Like I'm not even really like kidding about that. I know you're not like, kidding. I, I just think you're going to very <laughs> great lengths. But I think it, it's it's a a funny line. But I think in like the narrative sort of like how do we root for this guy's sense? Like that's one of the things. Like he may be a complete bastard, but like he's not a monster. 
Because you've seen nothing that would show you on screen that he is not a monster. This movie's just so distasteful, Noah. It's 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 Christ the Lewd. But it's so distasteful. How so? What does it do worse than the night before? Like, I thought the night before was, like, a distasteful... Like, I didn't want to see, like, a penis, like, growing into an erection. <laughs> like, that's that's not why I signed up for this movie. But Bad Santa never showed me anything... No, that that's on, not like, what I mean. I'm A visual level that I did, like, I found unpleasant. I mean that it's, like, it felt... I don't know. It felt like culturally older and gross and like a gross old man who is just like might have a sex. That's what it is. But I don't like that. I want to watch young people partying and uh, sure they can swear a lot and show pictures this of dicks. This is a movie about <sighs> what people like him, how they celebrate Christmas. <laughs> yeah, universal experience. And who better to cast than, can we just agree that Billy Bob Thornton though like just seamlessly becomes this person? Oh, I don't doubt that. He's like, barely acting. This is acting. who I just assumed Billy Bob Thornton was. Right, he's in the post Jolie spiral, and uh, he'll be in Fargo in eight years. <laughs> so, right, yeah, or ten years, whatever. Um, well, he, I mean, he's looked like he's in his late forties for like what thirty years now. Yeah, he doesn't look great. His soul is dog shit, which I thought was, I thought that was a good line, but like it was also like the perfect explainer for why. I hated watching this movie. Like, this man's soul is dog shit, and, like, this movie's soul is kind of dog shit. Like, I hated it. If nothing else, if you did not see this as a holiday-themed raunchy comedy, then as a holiday-themed crime drama, like, akin to The Ice Harvest, have you seen that? I haven't seen The Ice Harvest. Well, if you see that, I feel like these movies, like, are very tonally similar. Okay. Um... But yeah, I I think this movie is successful on like a lot of levels, man. And the two just cuz you thought you were going into something a bit more lighthearted, I don't think is the film's fault or if it's the other end of the spectrum, your cynicism about holiday films is uh has already been debunked. It's un- no, so. stop. It's unwatchable on both levels cuz I don't want to watch this man kill himself. And nor do I... But he doesn't. He he succeeds in the end. Great. That makes up for the prior 90 minutes of me watching him kill himself. He gets the kid the elephant. <sighs> and then on the other level is me just like not wanting to be like gratuitously like grossed out. No. What was gross about this movie? I don't I don't. Bad, bad. <laughs> wow. I'm going, I'm going a pretty steadfast pretty stalwart style good oh good for god's sake on this one this movie is a dark comedic crime drama <laughs> that happens to take place during the christmas season you... which is basically everything i love about a movie so i'm gonna have to give this one a good good Find us at Be Real Guys on Twitter, subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, all that stuff. If you want to talk to us privately, berealguys at gmail.com is the place. 
Chance, thank you so much for producing our show so well. I'll th- yeah, um, you're very welcome. You're the unsung hero of Be Real Guys. Chance is the one who somehow finds the time to meticulously edit. Thank you for continuing to do what you do. You're very welcome, buddy. Thank you for doing this with me. I appreciate it. Buddy, you uh, you can't kill that demon without stabbing the good boy. Champ, I'm uh, building a birdhouse. Bye, everyone. Happy Christmas. Uh, happy Hanukkah and a blessed Kwanzaa. I'm